recording being made in the chapter of the open book of a series on the epistle to the Hebrews. And this evening we're considering the central section which has to do with the great question of where and what is perfection and where can it be found. It is the custom in this meeting that we read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Hebrews, the ninth chapter. I will just remind you that the epistle to the Hebrews is not addressed to unbelievers. It doesn't preach the gospel to the unsaved. It assumes, in chapter 3, that they are holy brethren and that they are partakers of the heavenly calling. And the exhortation in this epistle is that they do not just remain satisfied with being saved, but that they should produce those things which accompany salvation. And the figure is a pilgrimage. And the uh, character that enforces the figure is Abraham, that although he was given the promise of the land of Palestine, yet nevertheless was quite willing to dwell in a tent and become a pilgrim and a stranger because he had in view the heavenly country and the heavenly city, the city which God built and not man. And in the course of the exposition of this epistle, we have noticed that in chapter 6, if you just turn, I want to make sure we've got this before us, in chapter 6, verse 1, we have this exhortation. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, or as we found, the marginal reading is so much truer, therefore leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. So the exhortation is to leave and go on, and to go on to perfection. Well, then we were noticing the other side of this center, at the close of chapter 10, that there was a warning. It says in verse 37 of chapter 10, For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And you can quite see that there are the two sides of this question. You either go on, or you draw back. And then it tells you in the next verse, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. So you've got your two words. You are exhorted to go on unto perfection and warned that you may draw back unto perdition. Well now we want to come to the central section of this epistle to the Hebrews because after all, if you tell a person he ought to go on to perfection and he doesn't know where it's to be found or what it is, well, he's not able to do very much with it, is he? So, we are leaving the exhortations and the warnings, and we are coming to the central section, and we discover that it all revolves around one person, as it should. You notice on this chart that we have before you, the first member says, this man, and then there's a Greek word, three Greek words written by the side of it, Hystodinikis, which translated means unto perpetuity, something everlasting. And then at the end of the section, 
the same letter A, chapter 10, this man, the seated priest, the work done, and again the word unto perpetuity everlasting. This man, who is this man? Well, thank God we know. There's only one man can fill this bill. No priest, no king before him, no sacrifice, no altar, but he himself fills the complete bill and we find perfection only in Christ. Now before we take this up, there's one little word that I would like to pass on that introduces this. You see, we're going to start with chapter 7. And as I, I generally do, I start somewhere else, don't I? So we'll do the same again in chapter 6. It says in verse 18 that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that introduces the Melchizedek priesthood once again that's been touched upon in chapter 5. But I think most of us are a little bit perplexed if we give this verse 20 a consideration. In what connection can Christ be spoken of as a forerunner? And you see, in verse 18 it says we are, we are fled for refuge. Well, that's an interpretation and not a translation. The translation is simply that you fled. But it doesn't tell you why. You might flee for refuge, but that isn't here. So I'm going to turn you back to an Old Testament passage where exactly the same word is found in the Greek version of the Old Testament and see whether it strikes you as it strikes me. Chapter 19, uh, Psalm 19, I'm sorry, verse 5. Speaking of the sun going through the heavens which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. Not running for refuge, but running a race. That's the translation of this word. And in the book of Esther and in the book of Job, it speaks about the post taking the messages. And Job said, my days are swifter than a post. That's running. Not merely running for refuge, but running on a message. Well now you do know, don't you, when you come to chapter 12 of Hebrews, that that is the figure which is used. Let's acquaint ourselves with it. Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run. We're not running for refuge now, we're running a race. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Now the word author is the beginner, and the finisher is the ender. Well, in that case, Christ can be actually spoken of as a forerunner. He's gone first. And Melchizedek, the high priest, is particularly the high priest of the overcomer. You'll find in chapter 7, that your attention is drawn uh, to this act, that it was Abraham who met him in verse 4 and gave to him a tenth of the spoils. And in verse 1, 
It says Abraham met him when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. This is the priest that blessed the overcomer. Abraham, with a little handful of soldiers, trained servants in his own house, had beaten the armies of these kings. And it's all a part of the story that introduces it. Well now, with that in view, we commence this central section, 7, 8, 9 and 10. Melchizedek is brought before us in his typical character for this cause, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first by interpretation king of righteousness, that's the word sedek, the Hebrew word righteousness, and melech is the word king, and then after that he's king of Salem, and Salem means peace, so he brings all those things to bear. Now as he started making his name have a meaning, he goes on and tells us that circumstances also have a meaning. It says without father and without mother. Well, he said, where do you spring from, Melchizedek? Oh, he said, I had a father and a mother, but they're not recorded. Every priest of Israel had to have their father and a mother recorded, and they were very jealous of keeping their genealogies clean and clear. But this man had no genealogy. He hadn't got to produce it. He stands alone. Without descent, that's without a pedigree having neither beginning of days nor end of life. It doesn't mean to say he was eternal. But he had no time when he had to commence his ministry like a Levite, and no time when he ought to leave off like a Levite. And so he was made like unto the Son of God, and he abideth a priest continually, perpetually. There's the thought. Now, that means to say that was his typical relationship. In, the, in another sense, he was a man like the rest, and he lived a certain time and he died. But as a priest, he enters into the story without introduction and he goes out without end. Now it says in verse 4, now consider how great this man was. Then he goes on to develop his theme that if Abraham offered tithes to this man, he must be recognizing that this man is greater than Abraham. And inasmuch as Abraham was the father of Levi and all the priests of Israel, then all the priests of Israel offered tithes in their father. And so he says, you see, what a great priesthood Melchizedek must be. And now he's talking to Hebrews, you see. And he was touching a very sore point with them. Because they conceived that no priest could ever be like the priest after the order of Aaron. Or oh, but he said, you've got to learn that that old covenant with its tabernacle and its priests and its services, they're going, they're fading. And the reason is they were only shadows. They were not reality. We found that when we read Hebrews 9, that the tabernacle itself that was built upon earth was built after the pattern shown in the mount, but it was made by hands and it wouldn't last. Well, now we come to the argument that is pursued in this section as to the various ways in which perfection might be sought. They're looked at, they're examined, and they're set aside. And that occupies the central part of that chart which you see at the top. No perfection under, by the Levitical priesthood because of the carnal commandment. But perfection under the Melchizedek priesthood. Then he comes a stage nearer. No perfection by the law 
but by the oath that confirmed Christ. Then no perfection by carnal ordinances, but by a better tabernacle and better sacrifices than were ever known upon earth. And then we're back again to this man, the seated priest. And then at the bottom is an analysis of chapter 10. But whether we're going to get there this evening is another matter. So we'll first of all look at verse 11 of chapter 7. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? It is, you see, the very priests, in the course of their service in the temple, actually sang as a part of their Sabbath service or their daily service, Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, the priests after the order of Aaron were singing, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. They were singing it themselves. He said, you see, the very fact that it's so imprinted upon your service, it's in your Psalms, it's in the book of Genesis, it ought to have told you that this is the picture and type of the true priest. And you discover when we read chapter 9, one of the weaknesses of Aaron's priesthood. It says that when Christ entered into the holiest of all, he didn't enter with the blood of others. But when Aaron entered in, he offered first for his own sins, and then for the people. Well, poor wretch, if he had to offer for his own sins, he couldn't possibly offer anything else but a typical sacrifice for others, but he needed a saviour himself. And of course, this was very hard going for the poor Israelite to be told all this that he built so much upon was now fading. But wasn't it blessed that Paul could say, but supposing heaven and earth pass away, chapter 1, thou remainest, Christ remains, and she pursues that thought right the way through. He says in uh, chapter 1 that Christ is greater than the angels. He says in chapter 2, when Adam is brought before us, oh, Christ is better than Adam. And in chapter 3, Moses comes before us, he says, oh, Moses was a servant, but Christ is a son. All the way through, he puts Christ. And if you've got that, friends, you needn't have all these ordinances and ceremonies and all the things that are going to make up so-called religion. You've got it all in its essence, as the word perfect might be in Christ himself. Well, now he goes on to pursue this a little further. Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar, because he said it's heavy that our Lord sprang out of Judah. And no one from Judah was ever a priest. That was the kingly tribe. So Christ was the king priest. The only one that God will really accept. Well now we move a bit further down to verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. It wasn't intended. Will you glimpse back to the epistle to the Galatians? Verse 19. Oh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 19. Galatians 3, 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? 
What's the good of it? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Or again, verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And when he brought us to Christ, he left us. The law was only to lead us to see our need of Christ and then to step back and not spoil. So in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law, but it could never be. And you know how the apostle in that same epistle to the Galatians puts the challenge. He says, I speak to you who are trying to put yourself under law instead of standing by faith. He says, haven't you heard that it's written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them? Well, he says, who can stand before God and say, I have, not one of us. And so we bow in his presence and we confess that we are undone in ourselves, that all our endeavours to keep laws and commandments and observances have failed, and then we are ready for the free gift of grace, which is the gospel we rejoice to both preach and believe. He said the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. He doesn't mean he put law on one side and leave you. He says, I'm putting law on one side to give you something better. What is it? A better hope by which we draw nigh unto God. Well, now we'll come to verse um, 23. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. The only reason why there were many of them is because they lived and then died. And so they had to have a successor. And one of the most glorious things for us to remind ourselves is that God has never provided a successor for Christ. Isn't that good? Never will be needed. He dieth no more. So it says, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Now we have to turn our attention again to Christ. But this man, because he continued ever, you see that expression, he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or an intransmissible priesthood, one that is never passed on to anyone else. Now this is the seated Christ at the right hand of God. Wherefore, he is able also to save them, and you may have said to me, if we stop there, but I thought you told me that Hebrews wasn't teaching the way of salvation. Well, the way of salvation looks two directions. First of all, you're saved from your sin and its guilt. And when that's all over, you need a saviour to take you right through the wilderness of this world and present you without spot before God. And that's what's here. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Not from the uttermost. This is right at the end of the course. He'll enable you to run the race and touch the tape at the end. Now, the English word, to the uttermost, doesn't say what the Greek word says to a person who's reading it. I'll write on the board the actual word for the word perfection. Helios. Now the word the uttermost is this. Now 
You can see TEL, TEL is in the same word. This key word perfection is buried in that word to the uttermost. So we can freely translate it. Wherefore he is able also to save them unto all perfection. The very thing that he's urging them that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So here we have now the finished work of Christ, the death, the cross, the shedding of blood is the basis of our salvation at the beginning. And then we discover that Christ who rose from the dead and ascended and sat down to the right hand, he's still got a work to do for us. He's now guaranteeing to save us all along the line unto the uttermost, unto the extreme end. It doesn't say seeing he died for us now, seeing he ever lived for us. You see, you can't get away from this Christ of God if you wanted to. His death encompasses you and brings you salvation. His life is there for you and brings you glory. And when you get to glory, you're going to be glad to know that he's going to be there if nobody else is. It wouldn't be glory for you or me if the Son of God could possibly be conceived as absent. So here we have this. Let me read verse 25 again. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the extreme limit unto all perfection that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice? Listen to this. First for his own sins. That's a look at Aaron. That's a look at every one of the priests. Before any priest could offer a sacrifice for his fellow man, that poor priest had to have a sacrifice offered for himself. Well, it was an awful rigmarole that it was going round in a circle. But when you come to think of Christ, he was the glorious exception. He needed no saviour. He needed no sacrifice for himself. It was all done on our account. So, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once. Now that's one of the key words of this passage. Let's anticipate chapter 10. If we never get right through this, I want to get to this piece. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. Now, would you glance at the bottom of this chart? The yearly offerings not perfect forever, and then followed by the words, no more offering or remembrance. And then at the bottom of the chart, verse 14, by one offering, perfected forever, and then followed by no more remembrance. Here's the perfect pattern coming out again, so let's get that, shall we? For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, you see, what we've been looking at in the priests, and as we read Hebrews 9, the tabernacle, they were all shadows. They were something on the earth, visible, to set forth invisible realities. But Christ has not entered into a tabernacle made by hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, he says, all the types and shadows have passed. 
Hey, once again, before we get into chapter 10, I'm wondering if we're going to get there properly, friends, yet. At the end of chapter 9, here's another word that needs to be carefully pondered. Verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once, in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Well, that sounds very wholesome truth, doesn't it? But when you look at the word put away, then you begin to suspect we haven't quite got the right end of it. Now the word, I'll tell you, is athetesis, in case you want to look it up. And if you look at chapter 7, verse 18, you'll get the same word. Chapter 7, 18. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment. Disannulling. Abrogating. Bringing to an end. Putting aside. And the next thing to remember is, especially in the Old Testament, that the word sin offering is the same as the word sin. It's identified with it to such an extent that the self-same word means the sin of the person and the sacrifice he brings. Well, with those two thoughts in mind, let's retranslate verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to abrogate the sin offering by the sacrifice of himself. There's your sacrifice, it's all gone, swallowed up in the one perfect sacrifice, never to be repeated. So, chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, who wants to have the shadow if it's been abrogated and set aside? Who wants to go on offering lambs and goats and bulls on altars made by hands when the one offering has been accepted by God on our account never to be repeated. So, he says, they're not the very image. They can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year make the comers there unto perfect forever. Of course, our version doesn't say that. Our version says, which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. But that word continually is repeated in verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever. Now, you couldn't very well say he has perfected continually. It's the perfecting that's continual. So, back again to chapter 10, verse 1. Can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year make the comers thereunto perfect forever? They were only perfected, and that was typical, for 12 months. And then it was all over again on the great day of atonement. And it says this in verse 2. For then... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But instead of that, there's remembrance made of sins every year. And he says, you see the reason why, don't you? For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. And what's the only answer? Well, if this answer is never given, we're without hope, friends. For God has already said, that the very sacrifices that he ordained to be offered, they could not take away sin. Well, we are finished then, if that's the case. But we are not. For Christ steps in. Once more, it's this man. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, true enough, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. That's it. That's it. Now, the Old Testament that is being quoted here says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but mine ear hast thou opened. 
And you say, however can you translate mine ear that's now opened into a body that's now prepared me? Well, you can if you know the Hebrew scriptures and you know the law. First of all, the opened ear means an obedient person. And the body prepared was the purpose the, was that Christ should come in the form of a servant and render obedience even to the death of the cross. And then secondly, in the margin of that psalm, it says, my ear as thou didn't. And a willing slave who didn't want to leave his master, he said, I will not go out free. So his ear was pierced with an awl to the doorpost. And Christ fills that. He was the utmost willing servant that ever you could conceive. He said, sacrifice and offering, they're no good. They cannot take away sin. As by man came death, by man must come the resurrection. So, a body hast thou prepared me. And it says in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Now we're coming back to where we commenced. At the beginning of this chart, you see, our attention is drawn, this man. And he's a sorry person who says, oh, what man's he talking about? There's only one man in the wide universe of God can step here. If all the God-given types and shadows given by Moses, promised to Abraham, and echoed by the psalmist David, if they all utterly fail, there's no man in heaven or earth except the Son of God who could step in there. And at the other end we're back again to this man. Oh, let's see it for ourselves, friends. Verse 11, chapter 10. But every priest, you see, when he spoke about this man up there, he said, these priests, they can't do it because they just drop dead and somebody else has to be appointed. But this man ever liveth, so he has no successor. Now he's taking another view. He says, these priests, they never sat down. Well, you say, that's a strange thing to pick out. Well, it was true. They never sat down. Because he's going to turn your attention to the one priest in the scripture who ever sat down in connection with his work, and that's Christ. A seated priest means work absolutely finished. So it says, and every priest standeth. Let's stop at every one of them. Every priest standeth. No provision made for seat for the priest in the tabernacle. A light to see by, a table to hold the showbread, the altar of incense for the covering of the priest when he went into the service of God, but no seat, only seat in the tabernacle was the mercy seat and that was in the holiest of all and nobody sat there. So we have this stress. Every priest standing. Then the next word is daily. He went on daily. A little bit earlier it says, remembrance was made of sins every year as it is on the Day of Atonement. But this says it went on daily. So he stood at his job and he went on day after day after day and when he'd gone a whole 365 days it was just as bad as ever for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. It only did it typically it never touched the conscience. So every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes isn't it multiply the word? The same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You can't have it plainer, can you? Now what's the contrast? But this man, oh blessed be God, he steps in. But this man, after he had offered 
one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. You notice how many times that attitude comes in Hebrews? Let's refresh our mind. Chapter 1, verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is the one for whom a body was prepared, friend. This one, the express image of his person. Yet he was going to possess a body. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Or again, when you look at chapter 4, it says in verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and he's not touched, he's not one who cannot be touched with the feeding of our infirmities, verse 15, and he sums it up in chapter 8, now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, we have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And once again in chapter 10, it says that this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever. Who? them that are sanctified. This is not a word to speak to the unsaved person. For the poor unsaved person is not sanctified. But if you speak to holy brethren who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and are now pressing on through the wilderness in the footsteps of Abraham and living a pilgrim life with all the temptations besetting them of a pilgrim journey, you can give them the assurance that if this is their trust, by that one offering, he hath perfected unto perpetuity. There's no word in the Greek language so strong as this. Them that are sanctified. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. And then he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. So it looks as though this man believed that the Holy Ghost inspired the word of God, doesn't it? And if you'll get back uh, to chapter 9, you'll see that after he gives you a resume of the furniture, typical furniture of the tabernacle. He says in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifies. That's a serious fact, isn't it? Because well, I've met some of God's people who haven't got any room for these Old Testament types. They sweep them aside. But this passage says the Holy Ghost is signifying something. It was written by inspiration of God. And you remember when Moses made the tabernacle, he was warned that he must make it according to the pattern shown him in the mount. And in this same chapter 9, we read it. It says in verse 23, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So we have this emphasis. And then in chapter 9, where we were reading it, I don't know whether you observed in verse 4, it says, 
in the holiest of all, that's the innermost uh, uh, part of the tabernacle, it had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we know that in the tabernacle there was the Ark of the Covenant resting on the mercy seat, but the the, um, altar of incense for which the censer was used was not in the holiest of all. Now, as the apostle slipped up there, has he made a mistake? Oh, no, friend. He's done it on purpose. He doesn't say the altar of incense was taken in, but he says the censer was. And what does that mean? It means that the high priest has gone into the heavenly holiest of all, for the censer's in there now, not outside. Oh, he says, what a complete thing then. Christ has fulfilled the whole thing so that he rearranges the furniture of the tabernacle. He says he's gone and he's taken the censer with him into heaven itself, there to appear in the presence of God for us, as we read. And so we have this marvellous picture of the tabernacle uh, emphasising this uh, way into the holiest of all. And as this starts, chapter 10, by saying that if these sacrifices had touched the conscience, they would have had no more remembrance. So it ends and says in verse 16, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. If you want to make a collection of comforting words sometime or another, get these few. No more. Surely there's a world of comfort in this that God tells us that he will remember our sin. No more. I think there'd be always a cloud over glory, wouldn't there? If when we got there we had an uneasy feeling that some archangel would go blurt out something one of these times and we should be ashamed in the presence of one another and of the Lord. When God forgives, he does something that we can't do. He forgets. Their sins and iniquities will remember no more. No more offering for sin because there's no more needed. And then it, it concludes this section, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And that leads us to the next section. Because now we've got something. And the next section starts with it. Having, therefore. Having something. But we won't anticipate our next consideration. Having something, let us draw near. The only thing that I would like to do in the last few moments, our time is almost up, is to just remind you something we've seen before in chapter 9, that Christ is said to have appeared three ways. It says in verse uh, 26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And do you see that? Just as in chapter 1 it says in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So the last days are all over so far as God's revelation is concerned. The last days are yet to come, but when Christ spoke, it was the last voice to be heard. After that, no more revelation. If you won't believe the Bible, you won't believe anything. And here we have the end of the world's already taken place. So far as offering for sin is concerned, now once in the end of the world, 
hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then it says now, now in the presence of God, he is there to offer, to appear. Verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So once in the end of the world he appeared, and now he appears, what's the next friend? All we know is this is our blessed hope. Verse 28, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, our version says, you remember, in our epistle, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. So here it is. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear, shall he appear, future, the second time without sin unto salvation. Well, now that leaves other parts of this epistle to be gathered up. I don't think we can do more this evening except to be very, very grateful that God has pointed us to the one and only solution, the only solution he knows, and the only solution we know. That in all these things, we turn away from religion, we turn away from mere going to places of worship, we turn away from all ordinances, whether they're given by God or not, or imposed by man, and we say they're all finished. And we stand where God places us, accepted in the Beloved, freely forgiven all our sins, and given life, which is life eternal, and a hope of being one day presented in the presence of God without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And if that doesn't make some folks want to yell out hallelujah, well, I'm a bit surprised. So shall we leave it there and hope that by the mercy of God we'll be able to enter into some of these things as well as give our assent mentally.